You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Brian Fitzgerald. The turn of the millennium in Ireland was a watershed moment for many. The sustained economic boom that prevailed towards the end of the 90s had caused a marked shift in society, and with jobs and money in plentiful supply, the Irish population revelled in their newfound wealth. Everything seemed to be in excess, and many embraced this flagrance with gusto as they enjoyed the spoils of the dizzying growth that the economy was seeing. With the Celtic Tiger in full swing, the country saw a huge increase in recreational drug use. There was an abundance of disposable income, and this, coupled with the intensifying party lifestyle, bred a new type of drug user, the middle-class recreational user, whose predominant drug of choice was cocaine. The use of party drugs soared, and as dealers rose to meet the demand, so too came a spike in gang-related activity and turf wars. Desperate to claim their slice of the bounty, a new type of gangster was emerging, a harder, more dangerous element than Irish society had ever seen. Gun use spiralled, and cold-blooded executions became commonplace among the criminal underbelly. And as these hardened criminals vied for every inch of ground that they could gain, the stakes were raised, and the violence sometimes seeped out into the innocent public. As a nightclub bouncer, Brian Fitzgerald was all too familiar with the booming drug trade in Limerick City. In his book Mean Streets, Barry Duggan detailed how Brian had grown up on the north side of the city, attending the local technical institute before getting a job in the nearby Krupps factory. However, when the factory closed in 1998, Brian found himself unemployed after 11 years of service and his strong physique ultimately led him to nighttime security work across a number of Limerick bars and nightclubs. He eventually landed in Doc's Bar and Nightclub, where he was employed as a security manager. By 2002, the 34-year-old had settled into a nice life. He had bought a house in the leafy suburbs of the Mill Road in Corbally, where he lived with his wife Alice and their two sons, six-year-old Aaron and 18-month-old Evan. Brian was a family man who enjoyed the fact that his schedule gave him more time at home with his children during the day, and although the nature of his work came with an element of risk, it was nothing that he felt he couldn't handle. Despite being the biggest nightclub in the west of Ireland, Docks, which had opened its doors in 1993, was a relatively trouble-free spot. Popular with students, the patronage was mainly in the 18-23 to age bracket, and thanks to the premises being well-run, Trouble was kept to the usual benign messiness that normally occurs where drink is served. As a security manager at Docks, Brian was said to be strict but fair to all. Colleagues said that he ran a tight ship, ensuring that both customers and staff remained safe, and while he had a knack for keeping situations under control, he was also known for showing respect to everyone he met. However, this diligence and commitment to his job would set in motion a chain of events that would have tragic and far-reaching consequences. Along with unbridled economic boom, the turn of the millennium also brought something altogether more unsavoury to Limerick. 
In the latter half of the 90s, the drug trade in the city had been controlled by one dominant gang. However, growing tensions and escalating violence had caused a fracture within this group, leading to an outbreak of bloodshed that split the gang in two. As both sides engaged in a tit-for-tat spree of violence and murder which consumed the resources of local Gardaí, an opportunity arose. An inn swooped a new gang to take advantage of this. The Dundons were a family of six siblings born to Irish parents who had emigrated to the UK during the 70s. The family patriarch, Kenneth Sr., had numerous convictions for violent crime and the four eldest Dundon brothers, Wayne, John, Jer, and Desi, quickly followed in their father's footsteps. The family spent time between London and Limerick over the next few decades before returning to Limerick for good in 2000, after both Wayne and his younger brother John were served deportation orders from the UK Home Office following a string of convictions for aggravated burglary. They settled in the Ballinacurra Weston area of the city and, as the feud continued between Limerick's main gangland players, the Dundons spotted a chance to capitalise. The brothers linked up with their cousins, the McCarthys, and together the group formed a formidable alliance in a bid to establish themselves as players on the local drug scene. The McCarthy-Dundon strategy was to flood the market with drugs which were sourced from a contact who was importing large quantities of drugs internationally into the Munster region. In a bid to exercise their dominance and demonstrate their ruthless nature, the gang also began a campaign of violence and intimidation against authorities. This included incidents where Gardaí were lured to the Dundon home on the premise of investigating the theft of a number of horses, before being ambushed and attacked by the brothers. Prison officers were also targeted, with gunshots being fired outside their homes and cars being vandalised and set alight. The McCarthy-Dundon gang meant business, and as they set about dominating the drug market in Limerick, they were willing to go to extreme lengths to eliminate anyone who stood in their way. By 2001, the gang had embarked on their plan to take control, using their network of runners to distribute a variety of drugs across the bars and nightclubs of Limerick City. According to Cormac O'Keefe, writing for the Irish Examiner, it was common practice for clubs and pubs at the time to give access to dealers in return for a financial reward. However, this was something that Gardaí were working to clamp down on, and in the previous year alone, 34 clubs across Ireland had been issued with notices warning that they risked losing their licence over known drug-dealing activities that were taking place on their premises. With its young, carefree and cash-rich customers, Doc's nightclub was seen as a prime spot by the McCarthy Dundons, and they were anxious to set up a trading base within the club. However, they underestimated Brian Fitzgerald's resolve to maintain the club's reputation as a clean and drug-free establishment, and despite their repeated attempts, the dealers were refused access to the club. This infuriated the gang, and as a result, one of its leaders, known only as Mr. Big, made a serious threat against Brian Fitzgerald. However, Mr. Big was already serving a suspended sentence for intimidating behaviour, and when Brian Fitzgerald made a statement to Gardee about the threat he had received, Mr. Big knew that he was at risk of having his suspended sentence activated. The McCarthy Dundons retaliated just before Christmas 2001 firing a gunshot through the Fitzgerald family home, which narrowly missed Brian's young son Aaron as he played beneath the Christmas tree. His car was also daubed with paint on a separate occasion. Fearing for the safety of his family, Fitzgerald went to Gardee and withdrew his complaint, 
meaning the case was never dealt with by the courts. However, the doorman continued to refuse entry to drug peddlers at Doc's nightclub. Thursday, the 28th of November, 2002, was a night like any other for Brian. He was due to return to work following a few days off, and given that Thursday was the main student night out in the city, it was bound to be a busy one. Brian bathed his kids and settled them down to bed before leaving for work just after 8pm. The evening transpired to be lively but largely uneventful, and when the shift ended at 3am, Brian agreed to give a few colleagues a lift before heading for his home on the mill road. It was just after 10 to 4 when Brian's jeep pulled into the driveway of his home. His wife Alice had been up with the couple's youngest son at around 2am and had decided to stay up to await her husband's arrival. She heard the door of Brian's vehicle opening outside and she headed downstairs to greet him, but was stopped in her tracks by the sound of four gunshots and breaking glass. Alice ran back upstairs and called Gardie, looking out the window as she talked on the phone. She could see her husband struggling with a man wearing a motorcycle helmet, while a second man stood behind the family jeep. Alice rapped on the window, and one of the men looked up, making eye contact with her before fleeing the scene with his accomplice. Presuming that the men had abducted Brian, Alice relayed what she had seen to the Garda on the other end of the line, and a unit was dispatched to the Fitzgerald house to investigate. When Gardy arrived on scene at a quarter past four, they were treating the incident as an abduction and they began to scour the area for clues, finding bullet casings scattered on the roadway. Fifteen minutes later, two officers discovered Brian's body lying in a driveway of a house in the cul-de-sac, obscured by a parked car. There was blood flowing from his head, and when paramedics arrived shortly after, they could find no sign of life, and Brian Fitzgerald was pronounced dead. Brian's murder had all the hallmarks of an execution-style killing, and Gertie immediately launched a full-scale murder investigation. By tracing the spent bullet casings on the road, they built a picture of his final moments. It seemed that the gunman initially shot Brian as he exited his jeep in the driveway, causing him to fall to the ground. Brian then got back up, running into the road where he was shot several more times. He fell to the ground a second time, and as he lay prone on the ground, the gunman approached him and shot him in the back of the head at close range. A post-mortem examination performed by state pathologist Dr. John Harbison backed up this theory, citing Brian's cause of death as multiple gunshot wounds to the body and head. Given the campaign of intimidation that the Fitzgerald family had been under, Gardie had a definite line of inquiry to follow. The investigation was led by Superintendent Willie Keane, who understood the complex nature of the situation that they were dealing with. The efficiency and brutality of the killing led him to believe that they were dealing with seasoned criminals, the type that lived by a code of silence. During a press briefing in the days following the murder, Superintendent Keane said, quote, This is going to be a slow process. As the investigation got underway, officers on the ground began canvassing the estate, collecting statements from the neighbours of Brian Fitzgerald. Several witnesses described being woken by the gunshots in the early hours of November 29th, and when they'd looked out of their windows, they all confirmed seeing a man in a motorcycle helmet leaving the estate along with an accomplice. One resident told Gardie that a number of hours before the shooting, they had noticed a, quote, stocky bald man driving erratically through the estate in a dirty red Ford Mondeo. Shortly after the killing, a burnt-out motorbike was discovered, 
four kilometers away at the Parkway shopping centre, and investigators surmised that this was the vehicle used by both men to flee the area. Brian's murder caused shock and uproar across the city. Limerick residents had endured the escalating gang violence for a number of years, but the callous killing of an innocent family man rocked the community to its core, and when Brian's requiem mass took place three days after his death, more than a thousand mourners turned out to pay their respects. Tony Purcell, writing for the Irish Examiner, said that Father Tom Mangan described Brian as a, quote, big man with a huge heart. In his homily, the priest talked about the senselessness of the killing and the profound shock that Brian's family and friends were left to deal with. Father Mangan continued, quote, For his beliefs, Brian has paid a heavy price. How can an act like that achieve any benefit, any time, anywhere? There's no sense to it. But there are people in our society today who seem to make sense of this. A guard of honour was formed by Brian's teammates from St Mary's Rugby Club, where he had played at wing forward, and in a fitting tribute from the IRFU, the funeral service was attended by Brian O'Brien, who was manager of the Irish rugby team, along with former international Colm Tucker. Frustratingly for Gardee, despite having a number of solid suspects in their sights, finding conclusive evidence to tie them to the killing was proving to be difficult. The gun used to shoot Brian hadn't been found, and it was suspected that the person responsible for his death had fled to England in the immediate aftermath of the murder. Detectives contacted police in Scotland Yard for their help, but their efforts yielded nothing conclusive. In the following weeks, little progress was made in the investigation. On December 19th, a peace march was held in the city in support of the family of Brian Fitzgerald and the families of other victims of violence. Armed with candles, the 400 attendees walked silently through the city streets before being addressed by speakers at City Hall. Brian's brother Jair spoke, stressing that the vigil wasn't just a show of support for their family, it was for every family that had been affected by the unprecedented bloodshed that had erupted in the city over the previous years. Just days after this anti-violence rally, there was a significant breakthrough for Gardee when they found a 9mm handgun along with a number of other items in and around the Mulcair River on the outskirts of the city. The discoveries were made on the back of extensive searches carried out by the Garda Technical Bureau in the Dublin Road and Anacotti areas. In a press briefing following the find, Superintendent Keane said that they were very happy with the response from the public. He told the press, quote, we have had a lot of help from the public and we would ask them to continue to help us with our inquiries. We are focused and determined and no stone will be left unturned in our efforts. But in spite of this development, the investigation continued to move very slowly and in January of 2003, with no arrests in sight, the head of the Limerick Garda Division, Chief Superintendent Jerry Kelly, said that he was personally looking into the murder and that it was the most serious case file ever placed on his desk. He described Brian Fitzgerald as a typical, everyday kind of person who was just trying to earn a living and support his family. But because he had become a potential witness in a criminal matter, he'd been subject to intimidation and ultimately shot and killed. The superintendent said, quote, This goes to the heart of law and order, and that is why it is such a major case. Chief Superintendent Kelly went on to say that when criminals succeed in circumventing the system of law and order, then democracy is put at risk. 
Brian Fitzgerald had quickly become the courageous and tragic poster boy in the fight for law and order against gangland crime. His murder marked a watershed moment in the era of Limerick gangland feuding and his name was brought up every time another gang-related incident occurred. And still, even with the full weight of the Gardaí on the case, there was yet to be any charges forthcoming. In April of 2003, four months after his death, Brian was posthumously honoured for his bravery at the Best of Irish Awards. His wife, Alice, travelled to Dublin to accept the award. An annual Shield rugby tournament was also organised in Brian's memory, with teams lining out in Thoman Park to commemorate Brian's love of the sport. As the investigation continued, Garda sources revealed that anybody they arrested who had a connection to the gang suspected of killing Brian had also been questioned in relation to the security manager's murder. Three people were finally brought in for questioning in direct relation to Brian's murder in July of 2003. However, they were later released without charge. That October, Brian's father Martin spoke to journalist Barry Duggan to voice his dissatisfaction at the lack of progress in the case. He told the reporter that the wheels had fallen off the investigation and that the entire family were unhappy with the investigation and the fact that no one had yet been charged with Brian's murder. The grieving father went on to talk about the ongoing impact of Brian's death on the family, saying, quote, I'll never forget that night we got the phone call telling us what happened. I'm shaking, sitting here talking to you right now. If the phone rings at night, I can't pick it up. I'm shattered from it all, and so were the whole family. According to Martin Fitzgerald, Brian's children were still suffering from the loss of their father. He said, quote, Evan is still young, but Aaron misses him terribly. They deserve better than this. A Garda spokesman refuted Martin Fitzgerald's claims of inaction, saying that the investigations were ongoing and had been actively pursued since Brian's death. In the end, the Fitzgerald family contacted the Minister of State, Willie O'Dea, who organised a private meeting for them with a top-ranking Garda officer to discuss their concerns. Three weeks after this meeting, four people were arrested for questioning in relation to Brian's death, but again all four were released without charge. As the first anniversary of Brian's death approached, his wife Alice broke her silence for the first time to speak to Evening Echo reporter Jimmy Wolfe. Alice said that she felt things were harder because no one had been held responsible for Brian's killing, though acknowledging that this wouldn't alleviate her grief or loss, she felt that finding justice would bring a measure of closure for her. Alice also spoke about the devastating effect her husband's death had had on their children, saying, quote, Evan was only 15 months and never got the chance to know his dad. Aaron does not forget his dad, and we have told him his dad was shot by mistake. I don't think he realises that it is final, and he thinks his dad will come back. In early December, Garda sources revealed that the investigation was in its final stages, and was at a critical point where a decision needed to be made whether there was sufficient evidence to charge anyone. A major case conference was held to discuss the matter. By this time, Gardi said that they had arrested and questioned 28 people in connection with the murder. An extensive file was sent to the DPP, but unfortunately, after lengthy consideration, in July of 2004, it was decided that there was not enough evidence to bring charges against the suspects. The Fitzgerald family were devastated with this decision. Brian's father Martin said, quote, The whole family is in shock. All we wanted was our day in court and for a jury to make the decision, not the DPP. We were told by Gardee that no stone would be left unturned, 
and now we just feel like the whole thing has been put back on the shelf. But in February of 2005, Gardy revealed that they had uncovered new information in the case, and they were confident that they would soon be able to return the file to the DPP with sufficient evidence to bring charges against two of the main suspects. Investigators said that they had managed to track the movements of the two men on the night of the murder using CCTV footage from various sources. Three months later, they got the break that they needed to crack the case wide open. James Martin Cahill was born in Birmingham in 1974. He had a reputation as a petty criminal, both in the UK and in Ireland, where he had family connections in West Clare. In 2003, Cahill had been caught in Dublin in possession of an Uzi submachine gun, along with 15 rounds of ammunition. He was subsequently convicted and sentenced to five years in Portleash Prison. It was a long stretch for him and he found the bitter isolation weighed heavy on his mind. By 2005, Cahill had started to see a prison psychologist to try and ease the flashbacks of his dark past that plagued him. Eventually, he caved and asked to speak to Gardee. It was the opportunity that officers had been waiting for. They had already identified Cahill as the prime suspect in Brian's murder, but they lacked solid evidence to back up their suspicions. Now, here was the man himself, willing to give up the story in an attempt to soothe his conscience. However, Cahill was very apprehensive and knew that as soon as news of his meeting with Gardee got out, he would be a marked man. For this reason, he was quickly transferred to a more secure location. Over the course of several detailed interviews, Cahill confessed his role in Brian Fitzgerald's murder to Gardee. He claimed that the murder had eaten away at him over the past three years and that he couldn't sleep at night. Cahill wanted to get it out of his system and clear his conscience. He told detectives that he had pulled the trigger and shot Brian Fitzgerald, in return for a payment of €10,000. He also named the other people involved and agreed to give evidence against them in court. On June 15th, James Martin Cahill appeared before Limerick District Court and became the first person to be charged with Brian Fitzgerald's murder. The Fitzgerald family welcomed the progress, filing into the packed courtroom to see the man that had killed Brian. Less than two weeks after his initial court appearance, Cahill was sent forward for trial, and his case was heard before the year was out. Pleading guilty before Mr Justice Paul Carney at the Central Criminal Court, Cahill declared, quote, I am willing to say that I will testify if a further case is coming. The court heard how Cahill had gone to Brian Fitzgerald's home with an accomplice in the early hours of November 29th, 2002. Coincidentally, the date was Cahill's 28th birthday. He was paid €10,000 in two instalments for his part in the murder, but because the state was hoping for further convictions, none of the names of the accomplices he had identified to Gardee were disclosed during his trial. Cahill received a mandatory life sentence on November 14, 2005. As he was led from the court, he shouted to the waiting reporters that his days were numbered. Quote, I'm going to be murdered in my cell tonight, or in the next few days. Watch. Cahill's fears were justified, and the state wasn't willing to take any risks. They put Cahill under round-the-clock protection, with up to three prison officers guarding him at any one time. It would later emerge that the five men named by Cahill in his confession were Mr Big, Anthony Kelly, 
Gary Campion and Dundon brothers John and Desi. Mr Big was said to be the leader of the McCarthy-Dundon gang. As an only son, he had been handed control of the gang from his grandfather, who was known as The Man, at the tender age of 20. It was initially expected that Mr Big's father would be crowned the head of the family, but on his deathbed, The Man summoned Mr Big to his house, announcing that his grandson was the chosen one. Although he managed to keep his criminal record relatively clean, Mr Big was known for living a lavish lifestyle, dressing in flashy clothes and buying his and hers BMWs for himself and his partner, with whom he had four children. He was also said to have thrown a hugely elaborate christening party for his twin sons, where he paid a leading Irish folk band to entertain his guests. Before Brian Fitzgerald's murder, the only time Mr Big had spent behind bars was a week on remand in Limerick Prison years prior. The environment was the total opposite of the luxury he was used to and he hated it so much that he swore he could never go back inside. A prison source told the press, quote, He couldn't hack it at all. He found the environment dirty and awful and certainly not up to the comforts of life he'd grown accustomed to. It was Mr Big who initially threatened Brian Fitzgerald, causing the security manager to make a statement against him to Gardee, and it was this statement that Mr Big feared would activate a suspended sentence he had received, potentially resulting in a six-year jail stint for him. Following Brian's murder, he moved to England to avoid the heat. James Martin Cahill named Mr Big as the person who ordered the hit on Brian Fitzgerald. However, Gardee could not come up with enough evidence to charge him. The second man named by Cahill was Anthony Kelly. Kelly was based in West Clare, where he ran a thriving warehouse business, importing and selling on goods from China and abroad. However, he had a checkered history and was known to run in criminal circles. It was through family connections in Clare that James Martin Cahill knew Anthony Kelly. Kelly was charged with the murder of Brian Fitzgerald in October of 2006. Gary Campion was named as the alleged getaway driver on the night of the murder. He'd been brought up in the Moiras area of Limerick City and although he was just 18 at the time of Brian Fitzgerald's murder, he had already racked up a long list of convictions. When he was charged with Brian's murder, Campion was already on remand, having been charged with the murder of gangland figure Frankie Ryan earlier in the year. The Dundon brothers were also already incarcerated when they were charged with Brian's murder, with Desi serving a life sentence for the murder of gang leader Kieran Keane, and John locked up for threatening to kill a key witness, Owen Tracy, during the Kieran Keane murder trial. The trial of the four men began on October 15, 2007 almost five years after Brian Fitzgerald's brutal murder. Unusually, the case was heard at Clover Hill Courthouse, which is usually a district court reserved for less serious cases and routine court appearances, as well as applicants to the High Court seeking bail. However, as it is also attached to Wheatfield Prison, the courthouse is equipped with extra security features, making it a better option for trials that require a higher level of security. According to Cormac Looney reporting for the Evening Herald, a quote-unquote ring of steel was in place around the perimeter of the courthouse, and all members of the public, barristers and media personnel passed through a metal detector and were searched before entering the courtroom. 
armed guardie were stationed throughout the public gallery, and presiding judge Mr Justice Peter Charlton was also offered protection. The trial was expected to last 12 weeks and the heightened security would be in operation for the duration. In another unusual move, the jury was selected to be composed of men only. Mr Justice Charlton then issued a media ban to the 12-men panel, forbidding them from reading any crime, news or colour reports in the newspapers for the duration of the trial. He also told them that they would be excused from jury duty for life at the end of the procedure. In his opening statement, prosecuting counsel Dennis Von Buckley told the jury that the main prosecution witness, James Martin Cahill, had already been convicted of Brian Fitzgerald's murder. However, Mr Buckley said, Cahill would tell the court how the four men on trial had all been complicit in the planning and execution of the murder. Then Alice Fitzgerald gave evidence to the court about the events of November 28th and 29th, 2002. She described the last evening Brian had spent at home, bathing and settling the kids to bed. When she got up at 2am to feed their younger son, Alice said she'd decided to wait for Brian, who usually arrived home at around ten past three. However, he was late that night, as he'd given a lift to a number of colleagues. At around ten to four, Alice recalled hearing her husband's jeep pull into the driveway of their home, and a car door opening. As she walked down the stairs to greet him, Alice heard four shots, and the sound of breaking glass. She heard Brian shouting, come on, and she ran back up the stairs to call the guardie. As she spoke to officers on the phone, Alice said that she looked out the window and saw a man standing directly outside it. The man was wearing a motorcycle helmet, and Alice could see the legs of a second man who she said was partially obscured by Brian's jeep. However, she testified that, from what she could see, the man was a, quote, big fat stocky guy. Alice tapped on the window as she looked down and the man with the helmet looked up at her. She recalled, quote, He had a very shiny face and his eyebrows, they met. They were jet, jet black. She said that the man had muttered something before leaving and added that she initially presumed that Brian had been abducted. Then Garda Cahill Kavanagh, who was a member of the Garda Sabakwa unit, showed the court the 9mm gun that he had found at the bottom of the Mulcair River in December of 2002. He said he had brought the gun to the surface of the water and handed it to a Garda colleague to be stored as evidence. Next to testify was Garda Liam Callanan, who was the first officer on the scene at the home of Brian Fitzgerald on the night that he was murdered. He told the court that he arrived at the house on Mill Road at a quarter past four on November 29th, 2002. He could see bullet casings scattered on the roadway and several neighbours had come out of their properties onto the road to see what was happening. It was described how two Garda colleagues discovered Brian's lifeless body in a pool of blood at half past four with a large bullet casing discarded on the ground nearby. Then a number of neighbours also gave evidence of being woken up to gunshots and screams on the night of the murder. Monica McIlvenny told the jury that she had been woken by someone shouting, quote, Oh God, no. Then almost immediately, Miss McIlvenny said she heard two or three gunshots, followed by a gap of about 30 seconds before another two or three shots rang out. Another neighbour, Mary Mannix, had woken just after half past three, she said, to the sound of a man crying out, Help me, help me, I'm being shot at. A third resident of the estate, Patrick Healy, gave evidence that he had been leaving a friend's house on the street at around 1am when he saw a dirty red Ford Mondeo driving slowly down the road. 
He could see that the driver was a stocky, bald man. Mr. Healy said that he became suspicious when the car made an awkward three-point turn before speeding away. Paul O'Byrne, who also lived in the estate, recalled being woken by gunshots at around a quarter to four. He got up to phone Gardee, and as he did so, a man walked past his window wearing a white motorcycle helmet. The final neighbour to testify was Elaine Murphy, who said that she looked out the window after being woken by the sound of the shots. Ms Murphy could see a man wearing a light-coloured helmet and dark clothes walking away from the Fitzgerald house. A few minutes later, she saw someone sprinting out of the estate and a second man walking out. She thought that the second man may have been injured and she recalled that he was holding a gun. Then a bar manager in Doc's nightclub, Caroline Daly, gave evidence, telling Sean Galan that on the night of the shooting, Brian Fitzgerald had dropped her and some of her other colleagues home. Eleven days after the trial began, CCTV footage was shown to the jury. Garda Dara O'Sullivan told the court that a man shown walking near Pineview Gardens in Moiras was Gary Campion. Garda O'Sullivan said he could positively identify Campion on three separate pieces of footage that were taken from cameras overlooking a house in Pineview Gardens. The footage showed a man walking at half past eight, a man getting out of a taxi at 1am and two men pushing a motorbike while a third attempted to start it at 20 past one in the morning. Garda O'Sullivan said that he could positively identify Campion in the first two clips, and although he couldn't see the face of the motorcycle driver in the third clip, his clothing was the same as the clothing that Gary Campion was wearing in the first two. He said that he couldn't make out the identification of a figure in a clip that showed a person getting out of a taxi at 22 minutes past four that morning. As the proceedings entered their third week, James Martin Cahill took to the stand. He explained how he had been born in Birmingham but had moved to County Clare to stay with an uncle when he was 15. Cahill said that he had been asked by a man, who couldn't be named in court, to shoot someone who had, quote, made a statement against him. He was offered €10,000 to do it and Cahill said that he had agreed. Cahill went on to tell the court that after several meetings with this man, he was taken to Anthony Kelly's house. He had known Kelly since he had come to live in County Clare through family connections. Cahill claimed that Kelly provided him with a gun and showed him how to use it. Quote, he was clicking it back and showing me how to use it, the safety in that. According to Cahill, Kelly had spoken to him as he was leaving and said to him that he didn't want to know what the other men were up to, but warned him not to mess it up. Cahill claimed that then John and Desi Dundon, along with Gary Campion, had taken him to Doc's nightclub and pointed out Brian Fitzgerald to him. He also alleged that the Dundon brothers had taken him to the housing estate on the Mill Road and helped him to scout out a place to hide while waiting for Brian to return from work. The gunman went on to recount the night of the shooting to the court. He said that he and Campion had travelled to the estate in a red Ford Mondeo and hidden in some bushes near the Fitzgerald family home until they saw Brian return. When his jeep pulled up, Cahill said that he ran towards it and an argument ensued with Brian Fitzgerald. Cahill plainly admitted to the court, quote, I shot him in the heart, then after a while I walked round and shot him in the head. Cahill said that he twisted his ankle in the commotion. He also told the court that he didn't know how many times he had fired the gun, saying that he just, quote, clicked it. The two men then fled the scene on the motorbike, which was driven by Campion, who dropped Cahill off at the Red Mondeo. 
Cahill then drove to the home of an unnamed man where he dumped the gun in a hedge and changed out of the clothes he had been wearing. He recalled travelling to Belfast the following day with the man who had ordered the hit before travelling to England. James Martin Cahill's testimony seemed strong, but under cross-examination by the defence barristers of the four accused men, holes began to appear in his story regarding Anthony Kelly and the Dundon brothers. When questioned about the Dundon brothers taking him to docks to point out Brian Fitzgerald, Cahill said that it happened on November 26th, whereas in his original statement he had said the incident happened on the 28th. Doubts were also raised regarding the time that the gun collection was arranged and the length of various journeys taken by Cahill in the process of committing the murder. In yet another variance in his evidence, Cahill said that John Dundon was not present when Brian Fitzgerald was pointed out to him at docks or when the Fitzgerald house was shown to him. However, he claimed that John Dundon was present in a house where the murder was discussed, though he wasn't present for the actual conversation about the murder. On the stand, Cahill added that he, quote, didn't want to convict someone in the wrong. Further, it was underlined that Cahill had claimed to hear screaming voices in his head, which he'd said only started to go away when he began to confess to the crimes he had committed. In addition to his conflicting evidence and precarious psychological state, Cahill's siblings told Gardy that he was a compulsive liar, and his sister gave a statement which was read out in court that said that her brother had lied, stolen from, and betrayed every member of their family. The prosecution case wound up on November 8th, and the following day, Mr Justice Charlton directed the jury to acquit John Dundon, as there was no case against him. On November 12th, the judge gave his charge to the jury. He told them to be wary of James Martin Cahill's testimony, as he himself was an accomplice in the murder. He also pointed out that where Cahill's evidence against Gary Campion was corroborated by CCTV footage and witness statements, his evidence against Anthony Kelly and Desi Dundon was not corroborated. The jury began their deliberations on November 14th and the following day they acquitted both Anthony Kelly and Desi Dundon of the charges, but they found Gary Campion guilty of the murder of Brian Fitzgerald. Alice Fitzgerald fled the courtroom in tears as the verdicts were read out. It was a disappointing result for the prosecution. Outside the court, Anthony Kelly's defence solicitor, Eugene O'Kelly, told the waiting media throng that he was grateful to the jury for upholding his client's innocence. However, he expressed his resentment that Kelly was incarcerated for a year on the, quote, word of a self-professed perjuring perverted killer. Mr O'Kelly went on to say, quote, It's quite extraordinary that this man's freedom has been denied to him for the past year on the rantings and ravings of a demented psychopath. Gary Campion was handed a mandatory life sentence for his part in the murder. In July of 2009, Campion was given a second life sentence for the murder of Frankie Ryan. In 2015, Campion appealed both of his murder convictions. In the case of the Brian Fitzgerald murder, he claimed that the evidence of James Martin Cahill was unreliable due to the fact that Cahill was hearing voices in his head. His appeal was denied, as was his subsequent appeal to the Supreme Court. In April of 2016, Campion was found unresponsive in his cell following a drug overdose, caused by a bag of drugs rupturing inside his body. It was thought he wouldn't survive, but after being in a coma for a number of days, he was said to have made a, quote, Lazarus-like comeback. He is currently serving out his two life sentences. 
Following his acquittal, Anthony Kelly applied for the costs of his defence. This was ultimately denied, with Mr Justice Peter Charlton saying that some of Kelly's evidence during the trial was, quote, stretching the truth. In 2008, it emerged that Kelly stood to gain 1.4 million euro from the sale of a derelict site to Clare County Council. However, the sale of the site fell through and Kelly eventually left Ireland and moved to Morocco. Desi Dundon is still serving out his sentence for the murder of Kieran Keane. He has applied for repatriation to the UK in anticipation of his future release. John Dundon was released from prison in 2008 after serving four and a half years for the threats he made against Owen Tracy. In 2013, he was sentenced to life imprisonment after being found guilty of the murder of Shane Gagan, a man not involved in the gangland scene who was shot dead in a case of mistaken identity in the Raheen area of the city. Although Wayne Dundon was never charged in relation to Brian Fitzgerald's murder, he was implicated at one stage by a witness who was giving evidence against him in a separate trial. Gareth Collins alleged that Dundon had come to his house to try and get him to help with the murder of Brian Fitzgerald. However, it was later proven that Wayne Dundon was in jail on a separate matter when Collins claimed this incident took place. In 2014, Wayne Dundon was handed a life sentence for the murder of businessman Roy Collins, which it was alleged he had arranged and ordered while he was in prison. The character known as Mr Big, thought to be the original mover leading to the shooting death of Brian Fitzgerald, spent a significant stretch of time in prison in the UK for weapons possession, before coming back to Ireland in 2013, when he was questioned regarding the murder of Brian Fitzgerald. Despite being the prime suspect in the case and being implicated of involvement by James Martin Cahill, it was his first time being arrested and questioned in relation to the murder. He was subsequently released without charge. In 2015, Mr Big was jailed for four years for a violent assault. Following his release in 2019, he was charged in relation to another crime and he is currently on remand awaiting trial. Ultimately, no charges were ever brought against him or anyone else in relation to the murder of Brian Fitzgerald. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Gillian and Naomi O'Keefe. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spiran. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time don't do anything I wouldn't do.